Blog Talk Radio. Today on Blog Talk Radio's Backroom Politics, the roundtable discusses the life, the legacy, and the reality of Nelson Mandela after his passing last week at the age of 95. Also on the agenda, why is a budget deal closer than everybody might think? Can, a, can America and the economy deal with another fi- fiscal crisis? And big staffing changes at the White House. Mr. Podesta is back. Look out, Washington. That and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is time for the favorite radio show that you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello, Justin. And to my left, he, or to my 11 o'clock, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the former... Wow, we've got a little bit of a back problem here. Hold on, guys. Let's try this again. And we're, we're back live again. Very good. So uh, joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former Vice President of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the former Floor Chief for Congressman General R. Ford. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Glad to be here, Justin. Glad to have you here, sir. And uh, to my 12 o'clock, he is the former uh, Undersecretary of Commerce who last served as many as four presidents. Uh, He is the former Senate staffer, and he is a very distinguished fellow at the Simpson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. The federal government's closed, and we're open. We are are open. That's true. And... uh, We've got a lot to talk about today, but uh, we're going to start off today by talking about uh, the breaking news that happened last Thursday. Um, Unless you've been living under a rock, uh, the South African government announced very sadly that a truly great man, a truly great statesman, and a a truly great civic leader, Nelson Mandela, passed away at his home uh, in, in South Africa at the age of 95. Uh, everybody knows the name Nelson Mandela. Those who are familiar with Mandela and his struggle uh, know the name Madiba, his native, his native nickname, if you will, from uh, his South African hometown, Kuto. And it is truly a sad day. Today, world leaders have gathered in Johannesburg at their largest uh, soccer stadium, which was packed, by the way, by not only world leaders, but uh, supporters and South African nationals uh, in, in celebrating the life of Mel- Nelson Mandela. 
We're going to spend a good, a good chunk of time today talking about Nelson Mandela, his life, his legacy, uh, and, and just what made him such a great man. And there's a lot of realities that we talk about with Nelson Mandela that we don't necessarily uh, associate with. But let's, let's start off with the big stuff right now. Uh, Alan Moore, you're, you're, you're close to uh, a lot of issues in Africa. Uh, you're very active in promoting uh, world global health in Africa, uh, the AIDS programs that come out of the U.S. government that support African nations down there. When we look at Africa and we look at the life of Nelson Mandela, how important was Nelson Mandela uh, early on as far as trying to bring a unified majority peacefully into South Africa? Nelson Mandela made all of the difference. He, South Africa today is a functioning democracy. Fragile, but functioning, and has been ever since uh, the white Afrikaans uh, leadership agreed to give the vote to, uh, to Native Africans and uh, to black Africans. And he by his example, by serving just one term and by approaching a process of reconciliation rather than retribution or revenge, made all of the difference. Um, difficult and challenging as that was, and the, the best comparison is a contemporary of his who he knew many years earlier, who is now a, a, a dictator for more than 30 years, is Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe, once known as Rhodesia. Um, and the difference between those two countries and how they pursued um, uh, peace after change is fundamental. And South Africa is the success story so far. Mugabe and Zimbabwe are the failure. And Bob Hines, you know, you and Congressman Al have been around D.C. I hope this doesn't come, around, come out wrong, but you all have been around D.C. and seen many global leaders. I mean, you all remember the days of Churchill coming to Washington, D.C. Oh, and Grover Cleveland was such a... <laughs> but when, when, you look at, when you look at Nelson Mandela, who, I mean, quite honestly, came from very humble, very simple roots in uh, Mavezo, and when he was born in 1918, didn't stick out as somebody who would be the great man he is today. When you look at all the global leaders, was this something that he was maybe destined for, or is this something that just came about of greatness inside him? It's only speculation on my part, what, what I'm going to say, but... You know, as a young man, he was quite a uh, quite a radical, strong, and you know, argumentative. And he was, a, 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 you know, a, a much more pugnacious fellow than he uh, as a young man than he was. And he spent 27 or 29 years, uh, 27 years in prison. And I think he spent a great deal of that time looking at his country, seeing what was going on, recognizing that. It was never going to be a very easy transition from uh, the Afrikaner, the white Afrikaners running the place as they had been for 75 years, I guess, 
and the black pop, the back, black population, which was 90% of the population. And I think in that time of, and he worked in his own mind how it, how he would have to act as a leader, how he would have to present himself, and what needed to be done and how it needed to be done in a peaceful but but straightforward way and being accommodating and being fair-minded and making sure that there was no, uh, you know, uh, getting back at the whites. But they obviously could have had the same problems, as Alan just said, the way Mugabe has operated in what was well, used to be Rhodesia. Yeah. Uh, Congressman now, I mean, you were still in Congress when Nelson Mandela was uh, released from Robbins Island from prison. Uh, what were the thoughts of, of Mandela's release while you were still in office? Did that have an impact uh, as far as moving forward with expanding relations after a very tense situation with the Duclerc government regarding apartheid? Yes, it did. But I must tell you, I've thought more about Nelson Mandela since I left Congress than I did while I was there, because you're so spread out on all kinds of things. A couple of things come to mind. It seems to me that Mandela did what Abraham Lincoln was hoping to do had he not been assassinated. At least there's lots of evidence that he at least wanted to try a path of reconciliation, not go out and beat up in the South uh, who had lost the war, so forth and so on. Had he been able to do it and had he been successful, uh, we might have uh, gotten to where we are today a lot sooner. And I think Mandela made that same thing. He speeded up enormously the uh, relations between blacks and whites in South Africa by doing that. Um, Alan Moore, when, when we do talk about his time in Robbins Island, uh, many scholars of Mandela, including and Mandela himself has even said that it was that 27 year time at that prison that pretty much brought him to the idea of something that a lot of people never thought would happen and that was reconciliation. Uh, it was a, a peaceful, it was a non-violent stance that he took after being a militant himself prior to going to Robbins Island. A couple of things. Remember, um, he was convicted of sabotage. And it, was a, it was a type of treason when he had been, not, he had been a nonviolent proponent, but then began to conclude that nonviolence was, was not succeeding. And, of course, all the people around him in, his, in the political party, the younger people, were saying, this is not working. They're beating us up. They're harming us. They're imprisoning us. They're taking our property. They're threatening us. We need to be more assertive. And so therein, they decided to begin a process of sabotage. What they did, though, is they tried to sabotage public buildings um, and power plants to disrupt the, the power structure at night when people weren't there. So the whole idea was to, to avoid human casualties. They were just getting underway. They'd had a few incidents. They were successful. And then they were caught. And this was a potential capital offense. Um, he was a lawyer, and he defended himself um, and made it very clear in a very famous four-hour presentation that he made in court that his dream was not black domination, but he could not abide white domination. He wanted both sides to work together. That was always his objective. He was given life imprisonment. He spent 18 years in Robben Island. Then he went to another prison for seven years, 
And then his last two years, he was imprisoned in a house where he had wide access to the outside world, information, people. He had a cook. It was imprisonment, but he graduated from the Robben Island isolation, lots of, of solitary confinement, hard labor, where he was with other political prisoners, learning from them, talking, reflecting. He, he, had, he was allowed two letters a year for years. He had no contact with his children, his, uh, his then wife, uh, Winnie Mandela. Um, but as he moved to the other prisons, they began to give him greater access, and he began to have a wider voice. People didn't know what he looked like. When he came out of prison, yet all the Western uh, correspondents who've been tracking this stuff said, we didn't know how he looked. And here's this sort of man with regal bearing. The, 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 the 27 years physically uh, had not destroyed him, but some of that, no doubt, was those later years um, when, when he was... Uh, when he was given improved access and improved treatment. But he, when, he, when he came out, he said to various people, the state stole 27 years from me. They took my children from me. They destroyed my family. I was not going to let them take from me the rest of my life. And I put the bitterness and anger and resentment aside. There's lots of discussion. Well, you know, you know, we, we we talk about him putting it aside. I mean, one of the great quotes out of Mandela uh, that that I got from the Nelson Mandela Center of Memory, which is uh, part of the Nelson Mandela Foundation, was after he was released. He said, "Quote: Historical enemies succeeded in negotiating a peaceful transition from apartheid to democracy, exactly because we were prepared to accept the inherent capacity for goodness in the other." Unquote. That is tremendous, tremendous statement after, you know, I was watching on 60 Minutes this past Sunday, and one of Nelson Mandela's daughters pretty much came out, similar to what Alan was saying, they, they, they ripped apart our family. It, it, it was, it was uh, you know, all those Christmases, all those birthdays, all those uh, historical moments in our family that were taken away from us, and it was taken, other, it was taken away from us by no other reason, by it was, it was, it was black. But... Bob Hines, when when you look at that, how big of a precedence was Nelson Mandela's uh, capacity and his implementation of reconciliation policy in South Africa? As I, as I think I said earlier, you know, I think he all that time in prison gave him the chance to become a different person in a lot of ways, to become a person who saw the only way to have a peaceful transition was to not hold a grudge, not get even, but to work together. And he did a, he did something that I think almost I have I don't think anybody else that I can remember in the last 50 years has ever been able to do as good a job of, as he has been in re reconciling two different races, two different cultures. In making it a country that is peaceful and successful. He's amazing. Joining us is our foreign affairs expert, Dr. Ralph Winnie. Ralph, uh, you had a couple of thoughts on this. Sure. Um, my family on my mother's side is originally from South Africa, and I do have fa family currently residing there. And they've always talked about the fact that um, they were very impressed with Mandela's ability to 
bring, uh, bring the whites and the blacks together in a spirit of cooperation and moving the country forward, creating a new dynamic where blacks and whites could live and work together. One of the major areas of concern for the whites was the issue of corruption. They were deeply concerned that they would have no future uh, once the uh, black government came into power and uh, that their land, their property, everything would be taken away from them. And Mandela, by reaching out and extending a hand to them, the white community and friendship, really preserved uh, the ability of the country to move forward. Remember, um, when Mandela took power, the whites controlled the banks, the financial institutions, they, and the military. So it was definitely in the interest of the ANC and the blacks to ensure that the white community did not uh, become afraid and just uh, just leave leave the country. So Mandela was very smart in that respect in reaching out to the white community. But now, um, under Zuma, there's a tremendous amount of concern that uh, issues involving corruption um, are going to play out, and it could be detrimental to the future of of the country. You ask any person in South Africa, they want to make sure they have a future um, in this in this uh, global economy. Congressman Al, I've been contemplating a little bit the enormous, almost surprise, uh, and certainly the enormous recognition that everybody gives to Nelson Mandela for all of his character traits. And I keep wondering, yeah, he was a great man and all of that, the great things, but isn't the reason we're so surprised is that he behaved the way we all say we should all behave? Uh, and, and almost none of us do. Right, right. And, and, and it's a surprise when someone actually does it. Now, I don't know what his religion was, but the Christian religion, the Jewish religion, and a number of other religions have, have in it forgiveness and, and reconciliation, you know, the things on which that could be based. And uh, yet, in all the world, there are so few people like Nelson Mandela, and it surprises us and shocks us and should probably shame us just a little bit that there are more of us who more often can uh, act that way. Alan Moore, go ahead first. Just a couple of interesting things about the early life of, of, of Mandela. His father had four wives. Right. He was being raised by his mother in a small village with, with a couple of siblings. He didn't know his father. But when his father died at the time that Mandela was nine years old, um, he, his mother gave him up to another family to be raised because she no longer had the income to, to take care of him. The parents were illiterate, but the mother was a Christian, uh, a Presbyterian, and she felt that education was really important. So he was raised a Christian, always considered himself a Christian, although at one point in his life he said, I feel comfortable going into the place of worship of any religion. Over this past weekend, I'm guessing that, that ministers all over uh, the world uh, were, were preaching about him, and, and some were preaching forgiveness, which he's credited with. Right. Others were saying, as one of his biographers did, he was angry, and he was bitter, but he managed it and controlled it for a later, for a larger good. He was, he was a smart politician who could see the bigger picture. So he subjugated those personal feelings 
for the larger good. It doesn't really matter whether it's forgiveness in a true religious context or or just an intelligent management of the situation, but he pulled it off. But Alan, you know, we, we look largely at the legacy of Nelson Mandela as being one of this peaceful, almost Gandhi-esque figure in South African, in the South African uprising, in the African movement. You know, we, we forget sometimes that, in fact, it was Nelson Mandela who's one of the key figures of, find, of, of the establishment of the guerrilla army known as the MK. That was his doing. Uh, he was a, a very staunch leader of the militant side of what became the modern-day African National Congress, the, the ANC. He, he founded the ANC Youth League and became president of, of that Youth League. Is, is, is that some of the things that when we look at Mandela's legacy, uh, Bob Hines, that we, we say, wait a minute, we, we've got to look at the whole issue. Not saying that's a bad man, but this is, he's not the, the stellar saint that everybody may be saying he is. Let's, let's not call him a saint. I think that's prob- I don't think he would want to be called a saint. He was a practical no does. No, he was a practical politician in a, in a very real sense. I mean, here you have a country that's, that's 90 percent black population, basically uneducated. You have a 10 percent white which control almost everything. Now, how are you going to make that into anything peaceful? Any place, almost any place else in the world, you have a revolution, you have a war, you have a disaster on your hands. He found a way. He found a way to ensure that his that his people did not succumb just to violence because they could, but they worked out relationships with the white leadership. White leadership lost political control, but gave it up because they saw in Mandela someone who would not let them be destroyed. Let them live, have a life, and and be a part of the community. And the relationships between the whites and blacks down there, I'm sure, are not as perfect as either one would like. But the fact of the matter is, it's a fascinating switch in a period of just 20 years, less than that maybe, the, the, the country could move so far from one side of apartheid to a democracy with the, uh, with the blacks and the whites living in side but, by side. You know, when we, when we talk about Mandela coming, you know, into, uh, into power and the gradual transition and, and, and the influences that brought him to that point, Ralph, uh, we don't hear the mention of then South African President de Klerk as much overseas as, as they might focus on the fact that this was, for all intents and purposes, a partnership between the Clark and Mandela. Mandela obviously having the greater sense of bringing peaceful transition, but the Clark, in his own right, had a role in bringing unity to South Africa. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's very, that's very accurate. People forget that Clark had to battle elements within his own party. Um, to ensure that uh, Nelson Mandela would get released. I mean, de, de Klerk um, paved the way for Nelson Mandela to be released and for them to have an effective partnership, and that sort of gets lost in the shuffle here. And I, and I think going back to Bob's point, 
what bring what brought the blacks and whites together uh, was through the issue, area of sport. Certainly, having the Rugby World Cup there, as we've seen through the movie Invictus, was very effective because it was able to bring the blacks and the whites together on something that they could uh, could agree on. And sport has a way to do that, as we've seen in other contexts as well. Alan, when we talk about the Nobel Prize winner uh, Nelson Mandela, we also have to realize that it, he was actually a co-winner with Nelson de Klerk. Was the Nobel Committee right in giving it co to both the Clark and Mandela, or was Mandela robbed of some sort no, of legacy? No, 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 no. You, 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 uh, you have to give de Klerk an enormous amount of credit. You, you couldn't. Mandela doesn't win without de Klerk agreeing to let him out of prison yes, and to basically let him be the president. Congressman Al, just I, I wanted to let Al go on, but it seemed this is the appropriate point to make a point. Not only does it take two to make a fight, it takes two to make peace. And that's the role of the clerk. Please, Alan. Oh, no, no, no. No, no, no that's, that's very true. That's valid. Right. I totally agree uh, with it. And I was going to say a word on this, this saintliness business because he famously said of himself when people said, you know, gosh, you know, we, th we think of you as a saint. He said, I'm no saint unless your definition of a saint is a sinner who keeps on trying. Uh, he would be the first to admit uh, many sins along the way, uh, including well before uh, he he got so involved politically and and uh, and dabbled with uh, uh, with with the violent group, with the saboteurs, uh, and so on. I mean, he he was not Gandhi, the man who gave up everything to live in poverty and walk around in sandals and a robe. He was vain. He, I saw his house in the, the house he came home to out of prison in Soweto. Now Soweto has got is a shanty town in parts, but it also has some nice neighborhoods. Um, and this was a decent little house, maybe a small, humble three-bedroom with a kitchen, a little living room, and you can go through it. Um, what you can't go through is the house he moved to, which is in this very wealthy part. Uh, of um, I can't remember if it's in Johannes was in Johannesburg or perhaps Cape, Cape Town. Town. I think it was which, in Cape Town. I think it was in Cape Town, and it was like a a great mansion behind walls and so on. He he uh, uh, you know as I mentioned he he came out of a culture of polygamy. He had three different wives, although it was only one at a time. But he had other relationships. Um, so. In, in, on the on the on the fidelity front, even though he was out of commission for 27 years, he was pretty darn active. Um, and but I but but I but I like that about the guy that he was so human and yet capable of doing these these really near miraculous things. And there was no guarantee that he would do those things. Everybody who talks about, boy, we were right about uh, taking on apartheid and sanctions and everything else we were we were right and we were also lucky yeah we were lucky that this extraordinary well, man was there at that point we're going to take a break we're going to come back in the next segment we're going to talk about the, how the global leaders are coming together and talking about nelson mandela ralph Wayne's going to join us in the second segment and i, and I want to talk about where where do where does his legacy go and what can we learn from nelson mandela on a political, on a social, on a civil uh, 
basis. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelly's Back Room, Shelly's Back Room has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee it. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, you have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me, breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics, and we're continuing our discussion on the life and the legacy of uh, former South African president, former head of the African National Congress, and uh, a great, great man in statesmanship, a great man in civil peace, uh, Nelson Mandela, who passed away last Thursday at uh, 95. we spent a little bit talking about his life and what brought him up to becoming the president of South Africa. But when we look at Mandela, 
and his role as a political figure globally, which he had a lot of credibility uh, globally. You know, when you look at some of the leaders that came out of South Africa, along with uh, Bishop Desmond Tutu, along with uh, you know his co-awardee uh, 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 De Glart, and you look at, but you look at Mandela himself. Mandela seems to strike. Uh, a nerve with a lot of global leaders and saying this is how it should be done. So when we talk about Nelson Mandela, uh, you know, this is a guy who talks tolerance. Uh, is there something we could learn from Nelson Mandela on a global scale? I'm going to start with you, Alan Moore. Well, I think we're learning. I think the reason that we have four former, a uh, sitting and three former presidents <laughs> in in Africa for this this event uh, and many other current and former world leaders speaks to his importance it, it, in, and I've also been reading about how the the countrymen his countrymen feel good about him they know a lot more about him they know some of his shortcomings and flaws and vanities and so on so in a way he's he's more popular outside of Africa. It's not to say he's not popular there, but we venerate him around the world. And but Alan, let me just interrupt real quick because Bob mentioned this earlier, and I, I want to just hone in on that one particular point. Is the fact that he is so human, the fact that he is so flawed? This is a guy who's been divorced, who had a real. I mean, this is a man who lost his son to AIDS late in life, who lost his great granddaughter, and yet managed to get up the courage to go to the World Cup ceremonies the day after her funeral. I mean, is it because he's flawed? Is that what makes him, uh, or does that make him what connects with the global? Yeah, I think I would say because he's so human and accessible. I mean, we're all flawed, but it's uh, some people seem more real, and there was a realness to him, even along with the sort of regal bearing that he had. But he made many mistakes. He was very slow to get on board the HIV-AIDS crisis in South Africa when 10% of his countrymen had the infection. Including his own son. Well, then much later, his, uh, his, his son died of AIDS. Um, uh, that's, just, that's just one shortcoming. I don't know that we love him for the shortcomings, but we love, we, we love him for achieving against all odds a, a, a level of reconciliation, peace, and moving forward that seems so unlikely given the history of that country and is such a contrast to the neighbor Zimbabwe. Bob Hines? That last point is, I think, the key because in so many countries in the world, we have exactly the opposite. And look at Ukraine today, Mar Miramar. You half, the, half the countries of Africa not at least have autocratic dictatorship, corruption. Well, we look at what's going on in the Central African yeah. Republic right exactly. now where French troops are losing their lives. And American uh, planes are going to be taking French troops in to stop the killing I see. Right. Now, the, the fact of the matter is, Mandela's genius is that he found a way to prove that in the right circumstances, with the right kind of leadership, you can have populations that are varied within a country come together, find a way to work together, and live together in peace and harmony in a pretty damn well good system. 
And that's almost impossible in almost every other place in the country, in the world, where there's religious differences or color differences. There's always fighting. It's because the leadership uses their opportunity to beat up on the other guy. Well, when we talk about that, but Ralph, we also need to talk about the reconciliation uh, committees that were formed all over South Africa during this transition. Uh, There was fear that people who had murdered both Afrikaans, you know, members of the police and the armed forces, as well as ANC members and MK members were just given a, a clean slate as a result of these reconciliation commissions. Was that a smart move on Mandela's part? Did that help secure or did that maybe put a fracture in saying, look, they still need to be held accountable for their actions? Well, I think at the beginning people were very concerned that it was just going to increase racial tensions all the way around. But as those uh, tribunals went on, you saw a real catharsis. You saw people really open up. And the whole history and the, the good and the bad of South Africa sort of came out into the open. And at the end of the day, you know, people, it, it was like, okay, we're going to advance, we're going to talk about this, but then at the end of the day, we're going to move forward and we're going to build a country. We're all going to come together, work together, live, as Bob said, in peace and harmony, and build a future for our kids. And that's what, what, what Mandela was trying to do. Alan Moore. Yeah, I, I agree with, with, with Ralph that it was a huge catharsis. I don't think we, we though, should, should and, and I'm not suggesting Ralph said this, but there's, there, there is to this day a lot of anger of people who lost a loved one to some horrible, grotesque act, who had to hear about it and then see the person or persons who committed it go scot-free. It was a very controversial move. All in all, it was a really important, positive uh, set of actions to move things forward, but there was also a legacy of anger and resentment among people but why who did, why lost did it, Why did it work out? Why in South Africa does it work? I, I can tell you right now, that would never happen in the United States. Uh, I, it, it may. It, it, you say it may? Hopefully we never have to get to that point. Go ahead and finish your point. But, but I, I guess the question is, why did it work in South Africa? Because theoretically, it defies the odds of civil peace. Well, I think one of the one reason, and, and, and I, I, it, it's hard to imagine that we would get to a situation where it would happen, where it, where it could even be set up in America to find out if it worked or not. Because um, we're a rule of law, and, and it, it's, it's hard to imagine a, a comparable situation. But I think that it worked in some ways because there were significant sins all around. If the sins were all on one side, and then that group was perceived as getting away scot-free, it would have been a, a, a different matter. Uh, but but uh, but I don't know. I think again, this is part of, and this was more than Mandela. This is where Des- Desmond Tutu, who was a co-chair of the whole reconciliation process, the church, and other leaders. It wasn't a one one leader state. There were there were lots of people who had been very involved over the 27 years and before, who who also contributed to the the, the so-called reconciliation process. Congressman Al. And I think another reason was that it worked. Had it failed, you would have, we'd still have problems there. 
And when I said maybe we'll have to do it here, is I don't see how we're ever going to resolve our immigration problem if we don't have something, the dirty word is amnesty, but if we don't do something like that, which is going to upset a lot of people, if it works, that anger will dissipate relatively quickly. If it doesn't work, if the worst things that they say will happen, happen, then we got a problem. Was it, was it an act of political courage that Mandela put the reconciliation tribunals into place, or was it a huge political risk that happened to work? What was the first? Was it an act of political courage for him to get yes. behind that reconciliation, or was it just a risk he was willing to take? Or, or, or yes and yes. yes. That, that can be an answer too. That, I mean, that's I what I'm looking I think for. They're it's the a radio show. I was a little puzzled because they sound like the same thing to me. Yes. Not necessarily. Well, I mean, it was, have, it was have, risky. It was very risky. I mean, there was, was no guarantee. Roll for there was no guarantee that it would work, but it. Therefore, it took courage. Correct. Yeah, that's the reason. It, absolutely. And and if in if in fact at some point somebody proposes uh, maybe maybe dressed up a little differently so it doesn't look directly like amnesty, uh, but they're going to have to propose something to deal with the ones that are with the the illegal immigrants who are here and that will take political courage too. Right. Right. And remember in nineteen sixty three the South African Parliament passed their own version of what we call a Patriot Act, um, in an effort to deal with what they consider domestic terrorism. So if you are a white, a black or colored South African, you could just be picked up by the police, held in detention um, without access to a lawyer, without access to your family, started out 30 days, went all the way up to indefinite detention, and all of a sudden people started dying under mysterious circumstances. Having these tribunals, in effect, brought, brought to, to the head what, what had gone on for the past 30, 40 years that people didn't want to know about, um, they want, but they wanted some sort of resolution. What happened to these people? Why was the rule of law violated? Even if we didn't personally agree or with apartheid, the rule of law was being, was being violated. Alan Moore, what, what was unique in this case, and where I, where I think it's, hard, it's difficult yeah. to, to draw too many broader conclusions, is that we were talking yeah. about people who were murdered. Right. People died, and no one knew their fate. So, if you had lost someone, part of you wants to know what happened, and reconciliation brought facts forward, and it brought them forward in a way where the perpetrators were extraordinarily remorseful. If you've ever watched any of the footage of some of these sessions, it's powerful, powerful stuff. So you lost a loved one. You now are learning what happened. You're angry on the one hand, but you're also in a way relieved to know and relieved to know that the perpetrators are devastated personally for what they have to live with, for what they did. That was all part of what, what this was about. But does, should, should the legacy and us memorializing Nelson Mandela also allow us the opportunity to take a look at other leaders such as Stephen Biko, uh, such as uh, Raymond Mahaba, uh, such as Malenge? Um, should we look at their role in all of this? I mean, because these are people that were looked at in some instances as militant against and causing civil unrest in South Africa. Do we do we, we look at them as being part of 
What made Mandela great? You know, I, I'm, we're getting out of, of, of my comfort zone here. I, I'm not sure the role of these guys. I, I think that the, the reconciliation process has done and covered most of what it's going to cover, has accomplished most of what's going to accomplish. Uh, the country has moved forward. It is still fragile. They still have huge income inequality. They still have massive poverty. They still have a huge HIV-AIDS problem. Um, when we talk about their success, it's success in comparison to some of their neighbors. Um, it, it, is, it is not, a, a, you know, it, it's not a, a Western country, although the city of Cape Town and parts of Johannesburg, Johannesburg, uh, Johannesburg are, very cosmopolitan. Are, 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 you know, have some great areas uh, and, and some wealth. But, but if you know, you, you can also go to to some of these shanty towns, whether it's in Soweto, Cape Town, or whatever, and see hundreds of thousands of people crammed together in little makeshift huts where. Uh, infectious disease is rampant um, education basically non-existent they have got massive problems they, they have still a long way to go but at least they have enough stability to move forward without wiping out all of their talent Alan or Congressman Al it, it seems to me as I think about this, that some, some nations, some countries, some groups of people are incredibly fortunate to have a spectacularly unusual and talented person come along. Uh, South Africa, we're, we're talking about it. George Washington, if you, if you really think about it, it's, it's a wonder this country ever got started, and it's a wonder once it started it didn't crumble, and probably the reason is George Washington. Hundred years later, Abraham Lincoln, World War II, Churchill probably for England, and and th those those things do happen. And uh, South Africa was very fortunate that they had a Mugamba, that they had Nelson Mandela. I was thinking of, of, of a different guy. Who was who was the the, uh, the the black terrorist in Africa? Idi Amin. No, not 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 him. Oh, Magumbo. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I remember. There's a there's a funny thing in one of the uh, an English comic saying playing Prince Philip, and he said, "Really, I, I I went there and he was very kind to me. He's promised to put my wife on the stamps, and and in fact he shook me very warmly by the throat." <laughs> But we, but we, you know, we look at all the, at, at the uh, world leaders that are gathering to memorialize uh, Mandela, and obviously the prominent uh, player in today's services was Barack Obama. Uh, Barack went over with a contingent from the U.S., which included uh, three former presidents. Uh, George W. Bush was there, Bill Clinton, as well as Hillary Clinton was there, and uh, Jimmy Carter. And Jimmy Carter was there. Uh, but well, Bush one would have been there if he weren't. If he weren't Bush so sick, if he weren't he so sick, travel. correct, yeah. correct, correct. Um, many saw uh, Obama's speech, which was delivered roughly about 6 a.m. Eastern time this morning. When we look at his comments, and, and there were several comments, but the, the, the big takeaway was uh, Barack Obama 
said it, I think, best was we will never see the likes of Nelson Mandela again. But when we look at the speech as a whole, Alan Moore, you saw the speech. You said it was a magnificent speech, one of his better ones. I, I liked the speech a lot. Uh, I was watching it uh, with my wife. Uh, she's always been a, a bigger fan of the president than I, although I'm certainly not his, his biggest detractor by any stretch. And her comment uh, resonated with me. She said, that's the President Obama I voted for. He was forced to speak without his teleprompter, but he did great. He just had to look down a lot. And uh, uh, he practiced it. It had probably been in the making for a long time. I thought he spoke to the people of South Africa, importantly. I think he spoke to the tens of millions, hundreds of millions, who knows, others uh, around the world. He spoke to, to the fellow leaders, sort of calling them out in a way, which was quite interesting when he said, he said, uh, there, 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 there are many. He didn't say of you guys and point to them, but the, there, there are many who extol uh, the the values and virtues of uh, of Madiba, as he's called, uh, while still participating in the subjugation of, of your own citizens. Well, the, the, um, quote, the, the quote that he gave, and it was a solid quote. Let me just read what he said, uh, according to our friends from the uh, Washington Post. Obama, in the Obama speech, he said, "quote." There are too many of us who happily embrace Madiba's legacy of racial reconciliation, but passionately resist even modest reforms that would challenge chronic, chronic poverty and growing inequality. Uh, he continued by saying, and there are too many of us, too many, who stand on the sidelines, comfortable in complacency or cynicism, when our voices may be heard. Uh, strong words out of the president, Bob Hines. Strong words, but good words. Um, to me, I think Mandela's long-term uh, image, his the heritage he brings to, he, he gives them the world, is going to be, and I think it's one of the reasons there's over a hundred leaders of countries out there in Africa today, all there for the all there for that for the uh, burial service. Seems to me that. The most important thing that the world can take from them, and other other leaders can take from Mr. Mandela, is that that's the way to become. If you want to be seen as someone who is a the, the father of your country, the leader who made your your thing work, this is the way to do it. Find a way to lance the boils of the problems. Find people on the other side who you can work with. Find people that are willing to negotiate and make deals and cut, cut the, through the problems. The idea of, of working together to find solutions is something we could use here right now, I might say. But the fact of the matter is all over the world, we have countries where you know one party, one group, one, one macho guy is running the place and nobody else gets anything else out of it. And more and more, something like Mandela and something like all the leadership in the world that is down there because they're saying the, they're sending a message around the world to everybody this is the kind of leadership that the world needs in so many in so many corners of the world and we got to shine some more lights on that and we got to find leadership like that because every country has people that could do that if they only will very valid very valid points yeah. uh, 
Ralph Winning. Yeah. Um, I had the privilege of meeting Ed Perkins, who was the uh, first uh, black U.S. ambassador to South Africa. And he was telling me when he had an opportunity to speak to uh, South Africans that had just recently immigrated to the U.S. and were in, in L.A., he, they were asking, well, what could they do to help uh, the future of their, of their country? And he says, well, you need to go back to South Africa. You need to put your skills, your background, your training into building, building the future of South Africa. It's not going to work if the well-educated, well-trained people leave and go to other countries because they're not sure what the future lies. And that's going to be the key. I mean, if, if they can keep um, well-educated, bright, talented people in the country, the future of the country will be bright. But if people get afraid and they leave uh, because they're unsure of, the, of what's going to happen in the future, uh, it, South Africa will go downhill in a big hurry. But, Congressman, uh, uh, when we saw, we saw President Obama's speech, a solid speech by, by, uh, by the President himself, um, obviously there's a connection. He, he almost, uh, and I want to paraphrase a little bit, but he, you know, this is a personal hero to President Obama. Uh, but when we look at President Obama today, are, are there any parts of how Mandela ruled as had the ANC, then ultimately as the President of South Africa, that he could take a lesson from? Is there some sort of uh, image takeaway from him coming back from South Africa saying this is how to govern? I don't think that the President's problems grow out of a lack of ability to communicate or to lead or to do any of those things. I think it's that he gets things, screws things up. And I think uh, I think his staff has a lot to do with that, and I presume we'll be talking about Mr. Destin later in the program. Right, right. May help set that or set that right. I think uh, I think Obama is a very good man who has yet to prove that he's a very good president. Uh, Alan Moore, did it surprise you that F.W. Clark, who did attend the funeral, did not speak? Uh, I don't know how those decisions were made. Obviously, they were they were looking for people of uh, of, of high prestige and standing internationally. I don't know if he was invited to speak or not invited to speak. He may have chosen not, he might have been invited to and not to. I don't know anything about it. I, it wouldn't have surprised me if he had spoken, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he's, he's probably got his own enemies inside and he thought uh, he's happy to be there and uh, and so on. Uh, How old is he? He's, uh, he's 77. He's oh, well, younger, but he's up there. Yeah. yeah. You know, remember Mandela was in his 70s when he when he got out of prison, so he was right. he was an old one-termer. Correct. Um, last couple of minutes of this segment uh, before we move on. Um, what do you expect that Nelson Mandela's legacy will be from here on, Congressman? I'll start with you. <clears throat> well, I mentioned George Washington earlier. I think there's a, there's a good chance that if this is sustained long enough so that you can be really confident it's permanent. Uh, he is going to be father of his country. He is going to be used uh, as a reference point, just as we use George Washington as a reference point uh, in, uh, today in, in our country. Uh, I think that will be his uh, legacy. Bob Hines? I think if Mandela could say today what he would hope his legacy would be, it would be that other leaders, particularly in Africa, 
would see that that is a way that can go forward and help Africa to become what it ought to be, which is a, country, a continent with some countries that are that are not now in very good good shape, mainly because of their leadership and because of their 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 the corruption and the uh, the, 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 the uh, divisions within the country. And his his I think his if he could speak and say what my goal is, what I hope people would take away from what I've done, is try to follow the idea of getting together and finding solutions to the problems that we all have in our own countries. Alan Moore? Yeah, I actually like what both these guys said. I think in, in Al's case, if, 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 if South Africa succeeds, and it's got a decent shot, then he truly is the father of, of, of his country against all odds. And, and, and with regard to Bob, in terms of, of the rest of the world, it, it, there's almost an aura around Mandela, which I could see in the future people saying, when confronted with a tough challenge with two uh, uh, powerful sides, say, what would Nelson Mandela do? do we, can we get any guidance from his example on how to bring together, suppress anger and bitterness, move towards a larger common good. What would Mandela do? That would be a pretty good uh, bigger, broader legacy for, for a person to have. Ralph Winnie. Uh, certainly inspires us to uh, get out of our comfort zone and be able to engage and interact with people that we're not normally comfortable with in an effort to come together and solve problems. That's the art of being a true leader and statesman. Um, a couple of personal comments real quick uh, from my side, uh, moderating this whole thing. You know, I, I grew up knowing the story of Nelson Mandela, uh, knowing him as a, uh, as, a, as a civil rights advocate, but also being part of something that was widely uncivil as part of the ANC and part of the MK. Uh, but we know his spiritual and statesman growth inside Robbins Island as we look at some of the writings that he did, which he did a lot of during his imprisonment. It, today, we have a whole generation and a half that does not remember apartheid. They weren't alive when apartheid was here. They weren't alive watching the clerk make the unpopular decision of releasing Madiba from prison and allowing him to become part of the growth of what would be today's modern South Africa. South Africa by no means is in any great stable shape to speak of. There's a lot of growth that needs to be done there. What I hope and what I believe is that through the actions of Mandela, even, even focusing in on his life after imprisonment, seeing what he did, the political courage that he did, allowing South Africa to remain or to keep, maintain its identity in anything, something simple as the Rugby World Cup to keeping South African colors under the Africana regime in their sports teams and allow the country to maintain an identity, truly courageous. Everybody in Washington... Every leader globally should take a few minutes during this time before his state funeral in Kuto to reflect on the fact that that's statesmanship. That is leadership, and he demonstrated political courage that I think all people globally should take a serious look at. 
and take a serious look at it quickly. That being said, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to get back into some Washington politics. We've got fiscal crisis that may or may not be looming and huge staff shifts over at the White House. This is Backroom Politics. By the way, I want to thank uh, Ralph Winnie, Dr. Ralph Winnie. Thanks for joining us on these My two pleasure. segments. Uh, we'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Happy Hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes. Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're talking right now about uh, some of the inside inside baseball politics going on with the looming fiscal crisis. Well, according to a story today out of Politico, we have possibly worked close to a deal. According to sources close to uh, uh, Chairman Paul Ryan, Chairman of the House Budget Committee, and Senator and Senator Patty Murray of your great state of Washington now, mm-hmm. uh, who's leading the Senate efforts on the budget. We're close to a deal. Minor differences, but we are close to a deal. Uh, the, 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 quick, the quick question that comes out is, you know, we're, we're talking about small differences and small details that they're waiting to unveil. 
Um, we still have a larger problem, Bob Hines, in the fact that we can get this small group of eight getting together, sitting around the table, and coming up with some sort of budget deal. Are Republicans and Democrats going to be able to sell this deal in mass in their, in their respective houses? I think they will be able to do so for one reason. Number one, none of the hot-button issues have been solved. That means that nobody had to give up anything fundamental. They also haven't uh, advanced the ball very far. We're still kicking cans down the road, and that can is pretty beat up by now. But at least for the next, for this fiscal year and the year after, if the if the agreement stands, they're in a situation where they will have at least put behind them the problem of having a budget in place. And they need to do at least that in order to be able to do anything else at all. Well, Congressman Al, Senator Murray uh, told a uh, leadership meeting in the Capitol uh, today that, quote, we're making really good progress, we're getting really close, don't have a timeline for you as yet. It would seem, though, that the timeline would be the important sticking point. I mean, this is very much a bullseye target they've got to meet before we start getting into another fiscal crisis, Al. Is that something that she's got to be cognizant of, or is she downplaying the timeline? Well, first of all, knowing Patty Murray, I would say she knows what what the parameters of the timeline are. Uh, She is probably not being totally candid about that, uh, because she's not ready to. Uh, as you point out, she's got to go out and sell this to a whole bunch of other people, and, uh, and she wants to have as much freedom to do it. I was, Paul is probably in exactly the same position. Uh, so I think, uh, I think she's putting a good face on it, which is the proper thing to do at this point. But uh, Alan Moore, Speaker Boehner has already said Friday is going to be the last day that the House is going to be in session for 2014. So the clock is literally ticking. Paul Ryan told reporters not to leave the Capitol today, and we're monitoring CNN right now to see if there might be some modest revelation of a budget deal that would go forward. But we're also hearing from sources inside the Hill that are saying that we're talking about a $45 billion swap in funds from a Senate proposal versus a House proposal. Is that... Is that a big enough gap or a small enough gap to let them allow them to go forward before Friday's, uh, which is the House Speaker's deadline? Well, remember they started out in this process uh, uh, more than $100 billion apart. And in one year's spending, even in government, that's a fair chunk of change. And, and if, if they couldn't get a deal, the current sequester, which were these automatic across-the-board cuts, was going to be doubled in size. And in the first year, Defense Department being the, the, the most obvious example, obvious example, there were all sorts of little things, unexpended funds scattered here and there. You could patch stuff together. You could, you had to make some real cuts, but you could Secretary also... Secretary Hagel made an art form of it. You, you, can, you could also keep, keep stuff afloat. If you take a, an unsustainable current situation and tack on... Uh, tens of billions more, 
then you are really going to see problems not only in military preparedness and readiness, but also real problems in, uh, in congressional districts and states all over the country where large uh, uh, military facilities and military contractors uh, are in operation. What these guys are trying to do is bring, is close this hundred plus billion dollar gap more, so we'll spend more money than, than a lot of the House Republicans wanted to do. We'll spend a lot less money than, than many uh, Democrats want to do. We won't go after Social Security, Medicare, or, or, or Medicaid for now, and we won't have significant new taxes or tax reform. There's some fees apparently involved in this, so there is some revenue, and there's some additional money on the table. So there's a, there, you, you scale back the sequester. You don't just say, okay, spend like drunken sailors again, Defense Department in the eyes of, of some. You've got, it's, you've got more money for spending and domestic programs. You're going to have flexibility. You're going to have to, you, you, can, you can make cuts. You just don't have to cut as much. Um, the appropriations committees need this guidance so they can make their decisions. So well, the, the number that's floating around right now, uh, according to several sources, uh, including our friends of Politico, is a, is a number, the number right now is at $1.02 trillion in 2014. And that's pretty much covering second, third, and fourth quarter fiscal year federal government. Uh, according to Politico, uh, Senator Mikowski said, quote unquote, they can live with the 1.02 trillion dollar number is that a sign of optimism that we should be getting out of the Senate, out of uh, Senator Mikulski, Bob? Yeah, I think so. Look at it this way: uh, the Democrats were up there about a trillion sixty-seven billion, and the Republicans were about nine hundred and sixty-seven billion, and that's just about right in the middle. It looks like both sides have, in effect, given enough about 40 or 50, one of, one of them has got 50 billion, maybe less than they want, and, and one is getting, you know, they're both getting less than they want. But we haven't heard from fiscal hawks, Congressman Al, in the Senate at least, i.e. Uh, Tom Cole, i.e., uh, I'm sorry, Tom Coburn. We haven't heard from uh, Ted Cruz or Rand Paul. I know you shiver when I say that. Let's hope we they don't. Well, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Congressman Al, these are players that could throw a monkey wrench in this. Is, could we be optimistic that leadership has already gone to them and said, look, this is the deal, get on board? The reason that, that I am optimistic about that in the short run for this deal to get through this year <coughs> is that the Republicans appear to me to have been quite chastened by some of the things they did and the backwash they got. And I think John Boehner is probably in a stronger position as leader in the House than he has been in some time. And the Democrats have been, bless them, have been very quiet and have not gotten into a yeah, 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 I told you so, I told you so kind of thing. And neither has Boehner, although I'm sure he's been tempted to say that to some of these guys that thought they knew everything. <clears throat> so I think that, that for the leadership of the Republican side, both in House and Senate, to argue that this is the best we can do now, we have other battles to fight down the road, we'll fight those differently, but for right now, 
let's not do any more damage to ourselves. This is the best deal we're going to get, and I think that'll play. But we've also, we also you know, have to deal with on the Democratic side, uh, Alan Moore. We have not heard from Chuck Schumer. We have not heard yet even from Harry Reid, majority leader in the Senate. We have not heard those key people chiming in, and they tend to be liberal on government spending. Is this enough of a deal that they could be on board and Trust get me. it through leadership? Trust me. Patty Murray has joined at the hip with Harry Reid, who's joined at the hip with Chuck Schumer. So she's got some latitude here, but she is reporting in at least twice a day and probably more often. So they are going to know exactly what's, on, what's going on here. Uh, an issue that's a potential snag is whether to extend, again, unemployment benefits, which we've been extending in a very unusual way ever since the, uh, the recession, and some of those benefits run out uh, at the end of this yeah. month. And, and that's not part of the budget discussion per se, but some people are saying, well, we, it needs to be part of the broader, uh, it needs to be part of the, 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 the broader conversation here. But I'm not worried about the, the Senate. The real question, if, 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 if Patty Murray can cut a deal with Paul Ryan, the Senate will not be a problem. I don't care about Cruz, uh, Paul, or anybody else. They'll make some noise, but they won't. There, there'll be enough votes in the Senate. The question is, what does Boehner do this time? Is, is, is he going to be able to get at least half of his people to go along? Does, what are the Democrats in the House going to do? They may see, you know, they may get off, go off the reservation here a little bit, um, they may say, we're in if you're in, but if you're not in, we're not in. And uh, I think the House is, uh, again, where it's going to be more interesting um, if, if, if the Republicans say, you haven't cut enough, and if the Democrats say, you have cut too much. Well, Bob Hines, this brings up a very valid point. Let's talk about the House for a second. You know, when we look at the awkward position on fiscal issues that John Boehner's been put in, uh, he's roughly gone the way of the House Republicans as opposed to doing what he really wants to do, and that is trying to mediate and broker a deal. Indications would lead one to believe, for those of us who have been around Washington long enough, that Paul Ryan's obviously got the support of the fiscal hawks, i.e. Eric Cantor, i.e. Kevin McCarthy in leadership, and some of the Tea Party Republicans uh, i.e. Ted Yoho out of Florida in the House, is, is there some symbolism of uh, hope that we can garner the fact that John Boehner might be able to allow Paul Ryan to introduce this and get the Tea Party and the rest of his majority leadership behind him and get the deal done? Uh, I'll take the same position that Alan indicated with respect to Democrats in the Senate. fact of the matter is, Paul Ryan would not be doing what, not being, he would not be saying how close we are to a deal if his leadership didn't know exactly where he was. But can now, we, but the, but the, now, the, the, the wrench in this whole works, the fly in this whole ointment is still the Tea Party Republicans yes, in the House. It is. It is still that problem. And I am sure that there will be some number who will vote against it, but it will be smaller than it has been in the past. It will not be 
anything like the kind of a vote where they were saying, let's defund the Obamacare bill. I don't this, believe, if I just go ahead. I don't believe that Boehner would have let this go this far right. if he didn't have some plan yeah. by which he was going to temper some of the Tea Party. Yeah. Well, and the Tea Party has been somewhat humiliated <laughs> among the Republicans. There are oh, an awful lot of Republicans who are just absolutely aggravated with some of these young people, the younger members, new members, who are not political people except as, as Tea Party people, but their experience is not in legislation and they are not but, legislators. But, but, Congressman, now I'm going to go to you, but the problem that still comes up in this is when you look at the younger sophomore and freshman members that came up in the Tea Party and the Republican Party, they still seem to be energized by their base enough to throw a wrench in this works. How does the speaker and the majority leader and the majority whip balance that out without completely alienating the base? I don't know, but what I'm saying is I believe Boehner has a plan. But I don't think they'd have gone this far without having a plan that is likely to work. And it's probably peeling off enough, not all, maybe not a majority, but peeling off enough of the Tea Party people to join the, uh, the other Republicans to be able to make it work. Alan Moore, you agree? My mind wandered. Oh. <laughs> Well, what we're talking about I do that to people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for joining us. You know, we're live on a radio show right now, Alan. I don't know if you know this, but I, I, my mind wandered. Great radio here, kids. Uh, it does happen. It does happen from time to time. I, I was tempted to say I agree completely with Al. No, you but didn't I want to knew do that. that was really a dangerous, dangerous place to go. <laughs> so the theory, the theory behind it is is Al's position is, is that basically Boehner's got a plan to deal with the Tea Party. My position in asking the question and moderating this is, do you agree that Boehner's got enough of a plan that will at least keep the Tea Party at bay in line with leadership through the direction of Eric Cantor and Kevin McCarthy. My, my guess is the, leaders, the leadership's pretty close uh, here on this. That doesn't mean they get everything they want. And as I said before, the Democrats are important in this case, too. Because if we, we know that we, it, it would be highly unusual, virtually impossible, for Boehner to hold all of his folks. What he needs is a majority, and he likes a good, solid majority. But there's just no way he's going to get everybody on this kind of a deal. It doesn't, it doesn't cut enough. And there probably were guys who wouldn't have voted even if they'd held on the House number because everybody in the House didn't like that number, the $967 billion number. So he could never get everyone. What he needs is a majority so that he can maintain this notion of what they call the Hastert rule. I need a majority of my party or I won't pass something through the Congress. Now... If, if he's got 60% of his folks, he needs a bunch of Democrats. Are they on board, too? And that's the question. If, 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 they, if they should decide, you know, I think this is a good test case. I think we're going to stand up and say, no, we're going to squeeze or we're going to try to get something else. I doubt if that will happen. I mean, we're this, up this, against this, Christmas. I mean, up this, up trillion dollar, this trillion dollar number is going to send the Tea Party on its ear in the House. It's, the Tea Party is not going to, as I said, plenty of House members are not going to support this. 
But it's not like the the Vayner, Cantor, uh, and McCarthy, and, and Ryan, for that matter, aren't talking to their colleagues and don't have some sense of what's possible. What they're probably not doing, though, is talking to the Democrats. And Steny Hoyer is in the middle of all of this, and he, he, he's tried to protect some things. Um, I'm guessing that because of where we are at time-wise, the president will come out and probably embrace this deal. Democrats will go along, but we're not there yet. That's not assured. Bob Hines. I agree, we're not assured, but I also think that the leadership on both sides in both, both houses pretty much knows that they have got to get this done. And I suspect we'll be able to find enough votes in both parties, in both houses, to get it through. It's not going to be easy. There is always going to be complainers on the liberal side and on the conservative side. There's always going to, because neither one of the neither one of the extremes are going to get what they want. Well, I mean, Congressman Al, we still haven't seen any indication of the supreme complainer in chief on the liberal side, uh, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi. This trillion dollar number, if it even remotely touches social programs, is going to send her into a tailspin. Is it enough that she can? maybe keep her base aligned and keep some of the Democrats defecting, or she, is this a lost cause for her? <clears throat> Interesting question, because I think Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats have done a remarkable job for a long time of keeping their traps shut and not stirring things up. Uh, I think in part that's not out of goodwill. It's because Boehner was having trouble and they were just backing off and letting him have trouble. Uh, but I have been wondering at what point do the liberals in the House come forth and now is not the time. Uh, I think they should uh, they should take the same advice as I think Boehner's giving the, the Tea Party and that is let's get through Christmas. Let's get this done. We've got lots to fight about next year. Alan Moore. Remember this is a nine month long deal. This is not the, the template for the future. Both sides can look at this and say, we did a lot better than we might have. They, they can, it, claiming victory would be a little bizarre, but you could say, the Democrats can say, we didn't touch Social Security and Medicare, even though God knows we need to. And the Republicans say, there's no new taxes in here, although God knows we're probably going to have to be some before we're done with, with all of this. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a nine-month deal. Nobody really got an obvious uh, big victory. So I think that, 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 that and the fact that we're at the end of the year, we've been fighting this thing over and over and over again means we'll probably get a deal. We'll be, we'll, we'll, it'll take us into next year, and then we'll be in an election year. And, you know, come see us in September, and we'll see how we're doing at that time. I, I, I would like to point out, Justin, that uh, you, you gave up drinking for Lent. Uh, Lent is long past. It is also <laughs> long past 5 o'clock when we're supposed to have drinks here. And yeah. I was wondering if uh, you Oh, forgotten. good. All right. Let's get Tip over here. Tip will come over. We'll order our drinks. Good Lord. We're getting desperate. I, I know. Al's, Al's getting really desperate here. You, you notice him shaking. He is. He's going through detox. This is horrible. Um, you know, when we, when we talk about the deal going forward, you know, part of the larger compromise deal going forward 
We'll get you your damn martini, Al. Good Lord. It didn't work. It didn't work because I'm still on the air. When we talk about this larger budget deal, I mean, there are also talks inside. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, you're here. Uh, Al wants to order his martini on the air. We didn't do that in the top of So we got to do that now. I might as well order my Russell's Reserve, too. So... Um, <laughs> when we talk about the grand deal, though, we're also talking about the fact that at some point, exactly, at some point, being held hostage are a litany of Obama nominees that are sitting in what is uh, political purgatory right now. Uh, is is this a sign that we might see a break in that logjam as well? Can the president be optimistic that if we get a budget deal, we might even be able to see some of these long-standing uh, nominees move forward? Bob Hines. Well, I, I think so, but I'm not sure. If, I'm not sure that the budget has much to do with it. You know, the, the Senate rules have changed with respect to nominees, and I suspect that uh, there will be very little problem with the president moving forward on most of his uh, nominees. Alan Moore? Yeah, I have a different take. Um, the rules have changed. Filibuster is still alive and well. It's just that to stop debate, it now takes a simple majority rather than 60 votes. The, the Republicans are about as furious over this in the Senate as they are about Obamacare. That is a big deal done by majority votes only. Um, that created a problem in the acceptability of Obamacare out in the world and the content of it, and in, in, in a much smaller, narrow way, it creates a problem inside the Senate on how those rules of, that had evolved over 200 years got changed rather abruptly. So what I think is much more likely, I, I, I talked about it last week, is I think that you're going to see Republicans quietly delaying uh, appointment after appointment. Just yesterday, or maybe it was today, Harry Reid tried to move a, a whole pocket, a whole packet of mostly non-controversial nominations, although there were, I think, Janet Yellen for the Federal Reserve is in there, although there's no question Jay about Johnson, it. Secretary of Homeland Security. Right, a little more, a little more controversial. But, but the Republicans just quietly and politely said, oh, no, we're not doing that. We'll take them up one at a time, you can you can roll over us, but it requires you to devote time to do that. You can get it done, but you can't get it done fast. So the easy uh, choice right now for Republicans is to just make their life very difficult and see if they want to have any serious second thoughts about their unilateral uh, change in uh, 200 years of rules. Oh, interesting take. All right, well, with that, because God knows if I don't get him before the next segment, Al's going to have a conniption. We're going to wait on our drinks. Well, when we come back, we're going to talk about the staff's changes and some of the other things that are happening, including Secretary Kerry addressed the Senate committees today about the Iran deal. Didn't go exactly as well as planned. We'll talk about that and a couple of other topics here on our final segment. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Stay with us. We'll be back in three minutes. You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know, you know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. 
But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. here live in Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., for our final segment here on Backroom Politics for this week. And uh, we were just reminiscing with uh, Shelley's owner and proprietor, Bob Matarazzi, who's gracious enough to host us. We can't believe we've been doing this three years. It's absolutely amazing. 
and we finally got numbers. Bob thinks we're going to start charging him advertising costs. <laughs> <laughs> we have to think about that. Hey, um, in case you haven't heard, uh, some old faces. It's deja vu all over again over at the White House. Some old faces are coming back to the White House. Uh, there are some big, big changes coming in the administration, the way that the administration is running itself and, and some of the key players in this. Bob, we were, we were talking earlier about uh, some of the key players that are, that are coming back. Uh, the big one right now is uh, Mr. John Podesta, who was former chief of staff under Bill Clinton. Uh, he's been an advisor to President Obama for a while. But he's coming in as a special aide to the president. What's this a signal of? Well, I hope it's a signal the president has finally figured out that a bunch of folks from uh, Chicago really aren't up to running the White House. And I think that the, and I think he's brought in John Podesta, who I believe that almost everybody in this town would say is a marvelously smart idea for him to have done. Mr. Podesta has been in Washington for probably 35 years, 40 years. He has been, he's been on Capitol Hill. He's been on the Hill. He has uh, been in the White House. He has been in private practice. He has done everything you can do. He is a very bright, intelligent, thoughtful, cautious, careful, takes careful steps, covers his tracks well, makes sure he makes, he gets all people he possibly can get to work with him on this problem he's working on. He is a very inclusive kind of guy. He will be a big help to the president. Congressman Al, I take it that you feel similarly on the remarks that Bob just made about John Podesta's uh, coming back to the White House. Absolutely. One of the things that too many presidents do is they bring their gang from home. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Carter and the Georgia Mafia. <laughs> and. Richard Nixon and the California Mafia. Reagan didn't make that mistake. Reagan built an administration that was rather broadly based. Uh, I, I don't know that uh, George II did that either. Uh, and he had a, a very successful term from his point of view. I dislike all of it, but, uh, but, but he didn't make some of the stupid mistakes that happened under Carter, that are happening under Obama, uh, and so forth. But Alan Moore, the, 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 we got to be careful. I mean, the, the Podesta appointment is just a one-year term. Uh, it does not supersede uh, Obama Chief of Staff Dennis Madonna's authority as Chief of Staff. Uh, it does not take away uh, from uh, um, Shiro, the, uh, Shalero. Shalero, uh, Phil Shalero, who served as basically the, the voice on, on the Hill for the Obama administration. This is kind of a unique situation. It, it almost seems, though, that this is either damage control or is this too little too late? This is something we don't know what it is yet. Because uh, for, exactly the reason, for, for exactly the reasons you say, you know, I, I'm amused that CNN is talking about this White House shakeup. It's not a shakeup. It's an augmentation. There may be a shakeup. They clearly have damage that they need to try to mitigate and, and control. A shakeup would be if John Podesta was coming in to be the new chief of staff open-ended. He's coming in to be a counselor, not unlike David Axelrod and David Plouffe, um, 
two guys who I think served the president uh, pretty well. Um, and, and, you know, they were, all, they were Chicago guys. They're no, the Chicago Mafia, other than Valerie Jarrett, as far as I know, is gone. Um, but but uh, they need help, and uh, they need help not just at the very top. They need help in, in management and in their infrastructure. They've, they've made some the, – the, the White House clearly fumbled communication with the president on a number of issues most, uh, most uh, recently – and most dramatically, Obamacare, it is unforgivable that the president knew so little, so late, about how bad things were. In the private sector, as many people have said, and we've said around here, heads would have rolled. No heads have rolled yet. I think that Kathleen Sebelius's days are numbered, as, uh, as I've said. But I think that it remains to be seen what John Podesta for one year and Phil Shalero for a short time is going to be able to do. But, but, but Alan, when we talk about Podesta, I mean, bringing Podesta to the table right now is an obviously aggressive move of, by the White House to improve their messaging capability on the Hill and get a good, solid messaging capability out to the general electorate. Uh, we're still not really sure about what Phil Shalero's role is going to be other than voice to Congress from the White House. Shalero apparently is more focused on the Obamacare piece. Okay. Podesta more broadly. More broadly. But here's the thing, though. When we look at the advisors around the president right now, when we talk about, you know, Valerie Jarrett's role, when we talk about David Axelrod's role, but then we look at Foreign Chief of Staff, we look at Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel was one that would speak his mind, tell exactly what he think, and this is what you got to do. It is point blank. John Podesta comes from that similar model. He's very upfront, doesn't hold back, and pretty much gives it to you black and white. That doesn't seem like a formula that would be successful to the president. Am I wrong in that? I don't think we know that. Um, I think that, 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 that it's unfair to the people around Obama to say that they're a bunch of yes-men who don't, uh, who don't bring Brett be, uh, bring bad would news. You, would you the not question, agree that, 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 that the current administration, the way it operates, isn't insular? It is insular, uh, but that doesn't mean it's a bunch of yes people. I think they're managed poorly, and I think they have taken too much into themselves, but it, it, there, there's a question of, of insularity, and then there's a question of basic competence, and I think that, that that you can be insular and be competent, or you can be insular and be not so competent. When we talked about what the president did or did not know about, uh, about the rollout, it wasn't that people were hiding it from him because they didn't want to bring bad news. Bring bad news. Bring bad news. They didn't know. That's competence. Incompetence. Incompetence. Bob, Bob Hines. The big, the big advantage, and, you know, so Mr. Podesta may be there, quote, for one year, but that's obviously he can stay as long as, he'll stay as long as the president wants him to. Now, is that true, though? Oh, I suspect he's gotten rid of other He's gotten rid of other people. Yes, he including has. Including some from the yes, Chicago well, law. Well, listen, if he, if he gets rid of Podesta, it'll only, it'll only prove what a lot of people think. But the reality is that John Podesta, knows everybody you need to know in this town, on both parties, both houses, every place. 
he knows all the all the numbers. He knows everything that has to be done, how it has to be done, and he's proved it over a number of years in a number of operations, and he's always been successful primarily because he's smart, he's cautious, and he's determined to be successful, and he's always been successful. I have no doubt that John will do a hell of a job, and it will be all to the president's benefit. There's a fact that there's the fact that John Podesta has street credibility without owing his career to Obama give him some sort of, hey, look, if she, what are you going to do, fire me kind of aspect to his appointment? You know, let me put it this way. If the president at some point fires John Podesta, most people are going to say, John is probably exactly right and the president screwed up again. Al, Congressman Al, you agree? Yep. <laughs> I don't think it's some big bold move that he's bringing Podesta back. My Why guess not? is my because my guess is he's been begging Podesta to come, and finally Podesta said, "I'll come, but only for a year." If if he people get tired out, he's not exactly been a non-player. He's advised on the side. He's got as as these guys have said, he knows the folks on the inside, he knows people on the outside. He's not a miracle worker, but he's a good, solid asset that, that, that excels in a lot of things that are important. We can only hope that he, that he brings some of what the president wants, but I think that, that this one-year business says more about what Podesta was willing to do than what he was offered. Well, I, I, but I got to tell you something. The, the greatest quote in all this, Jonathan Allen's got a great story in Politico on this. Our good friend Jonathan Allen got the greatest quote, I think, in the whole story. He asked Rahm Emanuel's uh, comments on it, and his comments were, smart move. That's it. <laughs> I, you, you'd have to think that, the, that for some reason, and I don't know why, the president seems to be living in this dream world that everything is roses and cinnamon rolls in the world around him outside the White House, when in fact there's a lot of his own party that's not supporting him on a lot of what he's doing in messaging, in policy, and even in some of these fiscal fights, Congressman Al. Well, I'm, I'm not quite sure I agree with that. Why? With that statement. <clears throat> well, because it's too broad. Uh, it's what we do here on Backroom Politics. <laughs> <laughs> I, th I think that, that, that the president clearly needs help, and I think he knows that, and that's the reason Podesta's been, been brought in. What I don't know is whether he's figured out why he's been having all these troubles. He knows he needs help, hence Podesta, but he, he, he should have been doing something a long time ago as things didn't work. This didn't work, that didn't work, this didn't roll out, didn't work. How, how many times do you have to stub your toe before you start looking for the curb? Good point. Alan Moore does bring up a good question. Who's going to get frustrated first, the president or Dustin? I don't know. I mean, I we don't we don't know the term, the exact terms, the understanding that the two guys have. One guy cannot come in and change things overnight and make everything work. Um, the, the basic structure... But he's about as good a guy that could possibly do that. Well, he, he, there's, there's somebody that... that uh, he, he's certainly one of the best, but he has not been brought in to be the new chief of staff. 
He's been brought in to be a special advisor, special counsel. Uh, he's going to work side by side with Dennis McDonough. Now, maybe at the end of the day, maybe in six months, we'll see a bunch of things happening and people will say, that's Podesta. It's not clear. It's not clear where all of this goes. Is it a good thing? Yes. Was it needed? Yes. Is Podesta a, a good, qualified guy? Yes. Is it going to make a huge difference? Beats the hell out of me. We don't know. Bob Hines, the reality is the, the staff in the White House today is what it is. Podesta comes in. He is a major, major player. He's going to be probably saying some things or suggesting some things that other people may not fully agree with. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised because what's been going on has not been too successful. And that may cause some, some difficulties. It may cause some problems internally in the White House and in, 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 different, in difficulties for the president to make decisions based on the fact that he's getting two sides, he's getting two different points of view. Maybe that's good, I don't know, but I do know one thing. John Podesta will tell him exactly what he thinks. He will tell him exactly how, to, how things ought to be done and who needs to be talked to about it. And John will do us everything he can possibly do to make the president successful. Congressman Al? And I think he's going to be outspoken in staff meetings and yeah. what have you, but I, what, I, what I would really like to know is what he says to the president in private after the staff meetings. Uh, there are some ideas that get floated that have just been dumb, and uh, and he may not want to say that's dumb in the in the middle of a staff meeting, but he might want to sidle up to the president and say, "President, you really don't want to do that for these reasons." Yep. Well, we're going to keep an eye on that because that's obviously going to be something that could hopefully be a benefit to the administration and the president. Last thought on this one. Yeah, Go just, ahead. Just, just one thing here. Because his role is a little murky, um, what we may be seeing here is a, is a two-headed staff structure. Uh, Al was talking about Reagan, and Reagan actually brought two guys from California, Ed Meese and Mike Deaver, and then he added Jim Baker to the mix, who had Dick Darman by his side. And that was, they had a sort of a triumvirate who respected each other and, and, and worked very closely together. Dennis McDonough is still the chief of staff. Here comes Podesta, this big, this big experienced guy that we've, we've been singing his praises. It may be that, that he and McDonough work closely together so that when Podesta... As co-chiefs? Yeah, they, they, they don't have to use the title but because they, you, know, you have one person who's sort of titular chief of staff, but who can be a team... And when Al was talking about how Podesta would be talking to the president, I'm guessing that McDonough's in the room. If McDonough's not in the room, then McDonough's gone. But, but what they could have is sort of a partnership here where they work closely together on behalf of the president. And
Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu. The most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town